Southern Skies. Online Media. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under. I'm Steve Bisher and this is episode 130 of Australia's Aviation Show and the first of our Avalon 2017 series. Well, two years, it rolls around rather quickly, doesn't it? This time around, the Australian International Air Show, as always, had a pretty strong focus on military and other big iron, but rather encouragingly also had a pretty uh, reasonable representation of light and recreational aircraft. And most importantly, we were graced with a week of warm weather, which can sometimes be a little bit hit and miss weather-wise at Avalon, but uh, this year, as I say, uh, great warm weather, and that really helped, uh, particularly when it came to the public days and made them a real success. In fact, according to the organisers, uh, all crowd records were broken this time around, and I'm sure if you attended on either of those public days that would have been fairly evident the crowd lines were absolutely packed and it was great to see such great enthusiasm such great displays now uh, our team was a little smaller than in previous outings but of course grant was there and we were joined by roving reporter michael lee and uh, we gathered what i'm sure you'll agree was a great package of interviews over the course of the week in this episode grant talks to kimberly turner ceo of aerosafe and I had this big picture of this C-130 aircraft there and I think from there on in I thought I really want to get involved in that industry. Kurt Lyle from Rocket Brute about their new fuel app. One of the advantages you've got now here is you're seeing all your pricing information. Mm. So you're seeing your currencies, you're getting a full breakdown of all your pricing so you know what your base price is, what your fees, what your taxes um, are going to be in there as well. Handy also catches up again with Heidi Fedek aboard the Gulfstream G650. And there's a leaf that you can put into the table so it will extend and almost make uh, the equivalent of a dining room table right here in your G650ER. Meantime I bumped into Matt Hall and had a bit of a chat to him about his uh, start to the current Red Bull air race season. I love the MXS, uh, that's all I've really raced in, it was uh, the only aircraft I've ever raced in until uh, this last race but I did find the edge was actually easier to fly as far as racing was concerned. I talked to Patrick Coleman from Garmin about their latest tech offerings. It's, it's funny because a few years ago if you would have told someone you can buy this box and it's going to give you free weather and free traffic and it's going to cost you only a couple thousand dollars plus installation. In my opinion, people would have jumped on it and it would have been more popular than it is. And also talk to Cresha Ballantyne about how it can steal her job. Uh, and also about the Cirrus purchasing experience, of course. I'm not telling you because I'm constantly having to watch my back as people are trying to steal my job. <laughs> my secret, I'm afraid. And Micah caught up with Dr Andrew Kornberg and talked to him about his upcoming charity flight. Uh, I wasn't really uh, looking at it as a career, but it was just something that I always wanted to do. There's nothing like uh, getting up in an aeroplane and having the freedom of uh, going places, seeing places and seeing it from a different uh, view. And all this plus the now traditional Timbo's Tarmac segment. So without further ado, let's head out to the flight line at Avalon 2017. Kimberly Turner, CEO of Aerosafe, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Uh, really great to be here, Grant. Now, Kimberly, uh, yeah, we've got Aerosafe, as uh, as we've said previously. It's uh, sponsoring the uh, coffee cart. Aerosafe's everywhere around uh, in the air show. 20 years of existence. But I understand uh, your love of aviation started well before Aerosafe. Oh, ab- absolutely. I, I think um, anyone that's been in and around aircraft for many years and gets bitten by the bug certainly stays 
in the industry for a long time. Um, I remember coming down to Avalon Airshow and even when I was a little girl, I don't know how, but I convinced my dad to drive us all the way from Sydney to Melbourne and I saved up my money and bought my ticket and came in and, and was just overwhelmed and inspired just with the depth of the industry, the aviation, the defence element. And I, I will say, I remember walking into the trade booths and there was just this huge Lockheed Martin stand uh, with all of the aircraft models and things there and I remember just picking up this big poster and there weren't many of them and took it back and plastered it on my wall and and I had this big picture of this C-130 aircraft there and I think from there on in I thought I really want to get involved in that industry and and in picking a career path it was something that I really wanted to get involved in to potentially fly one day. So you wanted to fly, uh, you were at high school and on and looking at that C-130 poster and getting inspiration, how did it go from there? So I I guess uh, in leading leaving school and then trying to pick a career path I went for my air force testing and unfortunately didn't pass one of the tests and and the recruiter said you can come back in 12 months time or you can start air traffic control and I opted to come back in 12 months time and uh, in that time period I had the opportunity to enroll in the aviation operations management degree at the University of New South Wales that was the very first year that that course was up and running and at the same time I had the chance to join the army reserve and, and do some of my officer training at that time. What was really interesting is I thought I would circle back and resit my pilot tests, but in 1996, the Army Aviation Corps had a pretty serious accident in the lead-up to the Olympic Games on a counter-terrorism exercise where two Black Hawk helicopters collided and just the impact that that accident had on losing lives of Army aviators and Special Forces guys was really quite impactful for me and it was something that really motivated me to get involved in making a difference and really starting my involvement in this risk management field. You got into the risk management field. Was that a, um, an extension of your uh, University of New South Wales course? Well, it was actually interesting. I was doing some work in, in the Army Reserve and actually got posted to the 5th Aviation Regiment in Townsville. As a reserve officer, there weren't too many of us up there. And uh, I was working in the operations area for a fellow uh, Mike Wagstaff. And he was just great in taking me under his wing and really just educating me on how to be a great ops officer. I then had the opportunity to get involved with with the Board of Inquiry implementation team on developing some of the risk management methodologies, doctrine and training that was then subsequently rolled out across the Army Aviation Corps. And it wasn't until we were on exercise down in Sydney and it was a counter-terrorism exercise and we were using trains and buses and ferries and aircraft out at Qantas as potential hostage targets and things like that. With the exercises, we actually had the head of safety at Qantas and some of those um, really senior staff come through to actually observe the exercise and at that stage um, they were quite intrigued with the risk management work that we were doing and I had the opportunity to outside my reserve uh, side go and brief the Qantas Flight Safety Department so I did have the opportunity to sit around and think well how do I tackle this and decided that I'd start my business and really came up with the concept of AeroSafe and aerosafe risk management. And back in those days, not many people had heard about risk management. It was really just an idea or a concept. And it's just been amazing over the last 20 years to see the growth and uptake of this area that can help people proactively identify things that could potentially go wrong and just really get ahead of the curve, whether it's in the operational space or all the way through to at the corporate and business level. 
So AeroSafe came about because of that opportunity to consult to Qantas. You obviously you did the consulting there. Did that lead on to more work with Qantas? What happened was when I was invited to go and brief the department over there and when I really just opened up and showed some of the work that we were doing in defence, the comment that came back at the time was, we don't really have uh, this type of approach. We're really interested. And I thought to myself, well, if this is brand new to the military, if Qantas with a fantastic safety record and just such a strength in their safety department was interested in this, well, there's definitely a need and a market, even if it is just leading the leaders. And so um, over the years, we have had a number of touch points uh, with airlines around the globe. We've been fortunate enough to work with over 450 organisations in 16 countries. It's been great. It's only been in the last couple of years that we've had sales or business development staff. So most of the work that has come about has been invitation-based, where we've been invited in to work in and alongside organisations at what we say is really helping them crack the tricky cases. Can you walk us through an organisation decides they want to assess their risk profile, I believe is the phrase. So could you uh, talk to me about how you identify a risk profile and then how you go about identifying a current baseline and, and what you do from there? Well, I think in risk management, it's really interesting. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, well, what type of risk do you do? And I think my answer is, well, all of it, because if you understand what risk management is, risk management is actually taking a structured approach or process to, as you say, Grant, identifying, assessing, and then making decisions around the information that you've come up with. The whole idea of risk management is to be predictive and to identify what could happen in advance, not retrospective. And I think there's lots of other methods in industry, whether it's aviation or outside, that help us do that. But risk management is really about putting on that lens and and trying to look ahead at what those potential gotchas are. In terms of risk profiling, it really can be done at lots of different levels. In my mind, there's probably four different levels that risk management takes place. You've got that real industry or sector risk profiling that takes place, often by a regulator or an industry uh, association that's got the custodianship of that sector. You've then got enterprise or business risk profiling, which is really for those corporate leaders, CEOs, chief operating officers, directors of aviation, heads of maintenance, who are really contributing to looking at the whole of business approach. You've then got operational risk management, which uh, is probably the the part that pulls at a lot of the heartstrings for all of us, where it's the flying, it's uh, it's out on the ramp, it's doing the operational task, it's helping out at the air show, it's lining up the aircraft on the runway, even all the way through to baggage handling operations, you know, and, and that's quite an undertaking and a task when you've got anywhere from a dozen odd passengers at a regional airline all the way through to some of the biggest airports in the world. So that operational risk management is at the real front face of the aviation industry. Then we've got the last type of risk profiling is on key areas of growth and change. And that area is something that I love working in. And we've coined it doing a venture risk management plan because wherever there's a new venture, you're obviously going into it to get some type of outcome or gain, whether it's opening a new base, whether it's introducing a new aircraft, maybe whether it's even deciding on a career change. There'll be some you know, new adventure or venture out there that you want to embark upon. But if it's new and different and you've never done it before, well, you may just get caught out. <laughs> and isn't it nice when you, know, you can sit back and maybe draw on the expertise of others or look at lessons learned or even just do that forecastive type 
identification and get ahead of those things. And then if and when it happens, you're more than prepared. And a lot of the time, having been in these environments, like I do IT project management, so we do a lot of risk management in our projects. I'm always flagging, this is new. We've never done this before. This is a risk. What are we going to do to mitigate it and so on? But a lot of the times you you, you go, oh, these are the risks and, and you think you've got it all, but you haven't thought outside the box or things like that. So getting a group such as yourselves who come in, A, you've got a, a wealth of experience because you've seen so many others that have done it, but B, you can also provide an external look and a, have you considered this and make people open their eyes to some of the other risks that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting that different people take to doing risk management different ways. And although we've got this core specialised risk management expertise, what I love doing is actually going in and, and our team coming in and working in and alongside an organisation. We can bring the process or the structure or really make sure people are using the right techniques and methodologies to get that depth. But often the actual expertise lies in the organisation, but maybe the questions aren't being asked the right way. Maybe people just haven't given it the time, but to have somebody else kind of work alongside and extract that and put it in a way or a format that then just puts it all in the same place. I tell you what, there's nothing better than giving clarity to that uncertainty and, you know, almost putting that picture in front of people. So what benefits are your clients seeing? I imagine there must be quite a bit because if you're reducing risk, then you're reducing the chance of things going wrong and potentially you're also improving your uh, insurance premiums. There's a whole range of benefits that, that come from doing risk management. The first one is probably your own peace of mind. And, you know, if you put aside the compliance and the regulatory obligation to just be in a place where you're confident that you've got your finger on the pulse, that you know the full spectrum of the risks and that you've got some really deliberate strategies on what you can do to prevent things going wrong. I think that in itself is excellent. One of the second benefits is actually around getting some group communications. It's like as a family sitting around trying to pull a jigsaw puzzle together. You know, you put out all the pieces on the table and it's not until you all sort them out, you put the frame around, you get the corners done. And then as a team, people actually start seeing where those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fit in. Risk management is a little bit like that. You know, within any company, not one person holds all the risk information. And so it really is like a family with all the bits of the jigsaw puzzle, but someone somewhere needs to start putting the jigsaw puzzle together in order to really see the picture. So I think that's another benefit. You also talk about the insurance companies or maybe regulators. Within the aviation industry, there's a whole range of different people that require confidence that you're safe or require confidence that the risks are being managed. You've got people looking at you all the time, whether it's a fair paying passenger, whether it's in the sport and rec industry where you've got, you know, somebody that wants to come for a parachute jump and they're they're wanting to be not so nervous and, and really confident that the pilot knows what he's doing, that the ground handlers know how to handle the aircraft, or the regulators who are really appointed by the government as stewards of the industry to ensure that standards are being met for both the fair paying passengers but also for the public. So if one of the things is that we've got all these people looking at us that want confidence, how do we demonstrate that to people? And certainly a risk profile at any one of those four levels can assist in that. You just alluded there to sport aviation. So you, you've worked and are working with defence. You're working with the big end, uh, the Qantas's, the, the smaller airlines. Sport aviation as well. Uh, you're, you're going across the whole gamut, aren't you? Yeah, we are. And I think that's just testament to the fact that risk management is a process that can be applied anywhere. And uh, one of the things that often astounds me is when we go in and work with some of those high-end organisations, sometimes you would think, 
think that you know the processes would be in place and and that side of things and generally they are in writing but people are people and whether you're working for an aircraft manufacturer on a production line or whether you are building your own home-built aircraft each one of us has a role to play in that safety and the risk piece in terms of the sport and recreational industry I I love it and uh, you know when you look at sport and rec aviation um, in Australia over 47 percent of the Australian aviation industry represented by 39,000 aviators 11 or 12,000 aircraft are all involved in aviation and whether it's hot air ballooning whether it's hang gliding whether it's building your own home-built aircraft or even model aircraft you know everything up to 200 kilos which can be a a fairly large model (laughs) itself I think we're all wanting to share this airspace uh, you know with the big airliners with the fast jets up at Williamtown what's great to see is that there is a motivation and a desire to do things well and to do things professionally and by doing that to really latch on to some of these principles of taking a risk-based approach and also working within a safety management system which is really just a structured process around the safety risks in the industry. So the inevitable question you've worked with CASA on a number of items everyone talks about risk-based assessment of regulations have you worked on that front as well? Yes we have there's been a shift internationally and it's really flowed from ICAO which is this International Civil Aviation Organisation. And for those of you that aren't aware, ICAO really sets the international standards for regulators and then the country's aviation regulatory body like CASA then comply and meet ICAO's requirements if they subscribe to those conventions. So this move in outcome or performance-based regulation, which is really risk-based, has probably been on the move for the last six to eight years. And it's really around being focused on what is the outcome that we're trying to achieve. And then if you're focused on that, you then apply your processes that provide confidence to the regulator that you're going to achieve that outcome. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about Aerosafe and risk management and aviation? Well, certainly um, being down here at Avalon Airshow, this is now, I think, our 10th airshow that we've been down here in the exhibit hall. And what was really interesting in those first two or three airshows, we had our big sign. We, we kind of got down here, set up our booth. We've got our big Aerosafe sign. But then people would look up, read our sign and keep walking and really didn't know what risk management was. And then over the years, what's been really interesting for me is just to watch the change in uptake, uh, where now people know what risk management is, they actively apply it at work, they understand the benefits. But really what I'm seeing is people want to take it to the next level. They want a greater value out of the effort that they're applying. So as an organisation celebrating 20 years in the industry, that coupled with really seeing this genuine uptake and use of the risk practices I think is extremely encouraging and um, creates a great future not just for our organisation but I think definitely for the industry itself. Well Kimberly, how do people find you online? Our head office is in Sydney Australia and we've got regional offices around the traps in, in Canberra in Wellington in New Zealand we've been in the US now for 10 or 11 years with our head office over there in Washington DC but probably the best way to find us grant is via the website so that's www.aerosafe.com.au Kimberly thank you so much for spending the time and well done for uh, managing it around all the uh, background noise we've had fabulous well thanks grant great to meet with you today 
I'm here with uh, Pat Common from Gum and Pat welcome to Avalon welcome to Australia thank you very much uh, moved to Australia about a year and a half ago but this is my first Avalon very exciting so far are you enjoying the the dust it's usually a bit of a uh, you know a mixed bag here you can either be freezing cold and wet or it can be nice and warm so you yes. got the better end of the deal I think I've heard I think uh, I've, 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 I think I'm keeping the luck uh, the luck alive here hasn't been too dusty but they've been spraying the roads, so that definitely helps. Now we talk about uh, we talk about Garmin in a minute, but we, before we kick this interview off, it turns out that you and I have flown the same skies in the US uh, quite a few times. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, yeah. We uh, uh, sounds like we did our flight training about uh, two or three hours uh, flight away from each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's not often I mention a place like Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and people go, oh, "I know exactly where that is." <laughs> <laughs> yes, I uh, I flew there once or twice when I did my flight training at uh, Southern Illinois University, not uh, not too far away. Oh, fantastic. Now, Garmin, of course, uh, world leaders, of course, in glass cockpits, haven't have really taken the world by storm. Speaking of someone who learned to fly on steam gauges, I talk about this a lot on our show, but uh, everybody's transitioning over to the G1000, and uh, and that's kind of a suite of instruments now. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's really taken over in the flight training world. Um, uh, lots of people like that. It's more closely... Uh, uh, featured to how airline pilots fly with uh, EFIS systems and electronic gauges. You know, it's interesting when I first, I actually found it a little confronting the first time I flew a glass cockpit, but once you sort of get the hang of it, it's actually not that hard to really transition into, is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely something that if you've only flown steam gauges before, it will take a little bit of time. It always helps to have a flight instructor for an hour or two just to point out not only some of the big things, but some of the tips and tricks to help make that transition a little bit better. But Almost everyone who's flown for a little while open up your mind a little bit to how the training will work. Uh, they, they find it much, much better, 99 times out of 100. Garmin has come down here to Avalon. Of course, this is obviously ostensibly a trade show, so uh, you've got new products that you're uh, you know, trying to get out to the market? Yeah, yeah, we've got some, some newer products. Um, probably first and foremost on people's minds are our ADS-B transponders. Uh, we make options now that are both panel mounted and remote mounted, give you ADS-B out only for a little bit better price, or ADS-B out and in as well. Optional uh, included GPS uh, can give you a nice one box solution. The other product that we have on display, um, finally got a kiosk down from the States uh, because uh, it was so popular we didn't have any to put into a kiosk was our G5 uh, product, which is a digital uh, primary attitude indicator um, that uh, we've got an STC from the FAA to install into a few hundred different aircraft models. You can replace an aging attitude indicator or turn coordinator uh, with a solid state uh, glass uh, three and a half inch instrument. So the days of the gyros and vacuum pumps are on their way out. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It definitely uh, will help, you know, got one hand on its back as it goes out the door. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, uh, you talk about ADSB, of course, with the looming implementation here in Australia. You're seeing a big uptake in your sort of, in, that sort of equipment from Garmin? Yeah, definitely. Um, with the, with the implementation in Australia, it's been a little more stepped or a little more um, um, phased in over time. But yeah, right in the last uh, couple months, we've seen a big uptake and, and I expect to see a continue of that uptake uh, as as airplanes get into the shop after the mandate uh, but uh, either under that um, extension or just because there wasn't enough time to get it done before for the mandate took effect so uh, one of those things that it's if you haven't already got that done you're probably going to be at the back of a line I would imagine. Yeah so certainly amongst the pilot community here it's obviously it's a big talking point now coming from the US where perhaps uh, they were a little bit ahead of us in that regard have you how have you found the implementation there with ADSB? smooth has it been controversial all that sort of stuff so in the united states uh it's funny because a few years ago if you would have told someone you can buy this box and it's going to give you free weather and free traffic and it's going to cost you only a couple thousand dollars plus installation 
in my opinion, people would have jumped on it and it would have been more popular than it is. Once it became mandated, some people got a bad taste in their mouth, even yeah. though it still gave you that. But um, in the U.S., there's the added benefit of not only traffic, but the subscription-free weather. Um, and I think that's a, a big driver of people getting uh, outfitted and, and compliant early in the U.S., one of the cool things that Garmin uh, does that I've, I've actually learned about just recently, just uh, you know, prepping for interviews and stuff like that, is the way you can update the equipment using Bluetooth, using your iPad. That's a really revolutionary way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have we've have a series of products called the Flightstream, uh, and they are a Bluetooth gateway between a panel-mounted Garmin product and the Garmin application on your iPad. Uh, the most recent incarnation adds um, database concierge, is the feature we call. So... You get um, traffic sent back and forth between your iPad and your panel-mounted GPS. You can send flight plan information back and forth. If you have a weather source like our Iridium satellite receiver, you can send that back and forth. You can even make phone calls. But probably the most revolutionary part of it is what we would call database concierge. So with some of our products, if you don't happen to live next door to where your plane is based, in the past, you'd have to go to the airplane, take the SD cards out, go back to your computer, load the data to them, go back out to the airplane. Uh, and it was fairly labor-intensive. Um, what the database concierge does is it allows your iPad to act as the storage medium for those databases. And so as you sit at home or sit at your office, your iPad will connect to the Internet, connect to your Fly Garmin account, and if there's new databases available, download them locally to the iPad. Then as you walk out to the airplane, turn your avionics on, it will actually transfer those databases off your iPad to the avionics uh, in about the time it takes to do a walk around to the airplane. And so with that, you don't have to do any of the manual card switching around. And if you have multiple cards, remember which one goes where. Uh, and it, it really takes um, what was probably the most complicated part of ownership and makes it as automatic and as smooth as we can. Well, we're always here in aviation. We're always, you know, really pushing that technology envelope. So that's just really another example of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the great thing about Garmin, uh, aviation is really only one-fifth of the products that we produce. So there's marine fitness, outdoor, and automotive sectors as well. Um, and we really get to borrow a lot of technology across that spectrum. So we've used uh, voice command technology and Bluetooth technology a lot in our consumer applications. Um, we've taken that and beefed it up and, and done some security things for it that the FAA uh, cybersecurity measures um, and, and implemented that into our aviation products. So it's nice to be able to uh, play off each other like that. Well, now, of course, uh, if, if there's somebody listening to our aviation program who, for some bizarre reason, hasn't heard of Garmin, where would they find them online? Uh, sure, you can go to uh, Garmin.com uh, for the main page. Garmin.com slash aviation has all our aviation products. No worries. Hey, Pat, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm over at the General Aviation and Air Sports uh, area of Avalon 2017. I'm sitting here with uh, Professor Andrew Kornberg, who uh, is a doctor at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, but is also a pilot. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you. Tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your professional background to start with, and uh, followed by your passion for flying. Sure. So uh, I'm a neurologist, uh, so a brain doctor at the Royal Children's Hospital, have been there for um, close enough to 30 years uh, and um, I love uh, my job and I look after many, many children who have uh, really serious illnesses. My other passion, uh, other than looking after children, is uh, flying and I've been a pilot for 10 years now, uh, although I started uh, flying when I was in medical school. It just took a long time for me to 
finish everything off. And I thought really my two passions, uh, looking after children, uh, flying and the Royal Children's Hospital, uh, put it together and uh, Fly for the Kids was born. And tell us your journey through you know, your professional background as a doctor. Yeah, so um, as I said, I've been at the Children's for 30 years now. Um, uh, I went away to the United States uh, for five years uh, for training and I came back as a uh, consultant at the Children's and I've been there ever since. I was uh, the Director of Neurology for uh, 15 years, uh, but I uh, stepped down uh, late last year um, to take on uh, some other new uh, new things at the hospital but this uh, has been um, this actual flying trip has actually been something I've thought about for about a year and a half and it's now come together. Uh, I started flying in medical school but uh, it was expensive then it's expensive now to learn how to fly. Uh, I wasn't really uh, looking at it as a career but it was just something that I always wanted to do. There's nothing like uh, getting up in an aeroplane and having the freedom of uh, going places, seeing places and seeing it from a different uh, view. Then family and uh, uh, children uh, sort of intervened and then um, uh, about 10 years ago I started flying again. Uh, I uh, did training uh, from Essendon, Moorabbin, but also I, I had my, uh, I got my American pilot's licence and, uh, and since then I've uh, been flying Every weekend or most weekends, I've got I've got an instrument rating, uh, command instrument rating, and uh, I just love it. Uh, there's nothing like getting up there in the air. And does your flying, as you do every week, does your flying help you with your professional work? So I maybe just a disconnect, if anything. Sure. So I think there's there's two things about flying. Uh, flying has a purpose a lot of the time. So uh, uh, doing uh, a a, a clinic in the country so instead of driving uh, I would fly uh, so that's the purpose um, but it is so different to being a doctor it's so different to being any other career uh, it is its own career and its own uh, passion so yes it's a, even though it is uh, um, you know it's not a relaxation in a sense uh, it actually takes me away from my normal day-to-day life and um, I, I can't find anything better um, than just taking off on a runway and, and going somewhere and it's just a, a fantastic thing, an invigorating thing. Now let's talk about Fly for the Kids. Uh, this is an initiative that you've come up with, uh, with much thought and all that. Tell us a bit, what created the impetus for this initiative? Um, as a neurologist, I look after uh, children with really serious illnesses. Uh, I mean, you can think about, uh, if you can think of anything bad, that's what neurologists look after, brain tumours, strokes, uh, multiple sclerosis in childhood, but also a group of kids uh, that I look after are kids who have movement uh, disorders. Now, um, if you think about uh, you know, what we do, uh, we move our arms, we move our legs, and it's pretty well coordinated. But in children who have complex movement uh, disorders, they will have abnormal movements, and the movements can be very painful, can be spasm-like, and unfortunately there's very, very few uh, effective treatments. There are drugs, etc. 
Um, and what I try to do with this is uh, an initiative where we bring all like-minded people, uh, physios, OTs, orthopaedic surgeons, geneticists, neurologists, uh, uh, dieticians and neurosurgeons to try to bring uh, them all together in one place and look after children with these disorders. And we've been lucky enough that we're uh, doing deep brain stimulation, for example, uh, where we put little electrodes into the deeper part of the brain and that helps these children with their movements. But you have to have those sorts of operations and that sort of procedures in a clinic which can look after those kids. And that's the complex movement program which we will establish uh, with the funds from this program. And um, so that was my idea. It's a thing that I've been looking for, for you know, to do something to make it happen. And it's going to happen. It's, it's about to happen. I like that positivity. It's going to happen. I like it. I really like it. Describe this journey that you're about to undertake, flying virtually around the country. Okay, so, you know, the, the whole purpose of this is it's, a, it's going to be a very hard journey as anyone who has flown planes, not, not the big uh, uh, Dreamliners or the Airbuses, but uh, in a small plane uh, flying, day, you know, for hours at a time, um, it's pretty, pretty hard work. But I'm going to be doing that day in, day out for 25 days and I'm going to circumnavigate the whole of Australia, including uh, Tasmania. And I see this as a a major challenge for me and a journey for me. But I see this as not being as much of a challenge as the kids who have these movements, these movement uh, issues, and they live a challenge every day. So this is a small thing uh, in comparison to what they live Um, But the actual uh, flight, uh, I'm flying uh, clockwise around Australia. The aim is about 25 days of flying, uh, anywhere between four and six hours a day, depending on where I am. Uh, Circumnavigating Australia is about 27,000 kilometres. And I'll be staying in very remote areas uh, along the way. Um, And... That's the journey. I'm planning to be back uh, by the end of the month, I would hope. All being uh, good with weather, particularly in the north, um, and raising enough money to uh, really make a, a make a difference. And, and as I say to many people, uh, everyone has the opportunity to be in the aeroplane with me. Um, by donating, you're actually going to make a difference as well. Tell us, how else are you going to raise money apart from donations? What other avenues have you got to try and increase the amount that you get after this venture? So um, we've got some corporate sponsorships, uh, obviously, to um, pay for the flight. Uh, um, We have um, uh, donations. We have uh, families who are right behind it. And many of the families that I look after are actually going to their schools and trying to raise money. But the reality is um, governments provide hospitals and bricks and mortar, but the great things, the uh, gold standard care, is given by philanthropy through charity. Um, And that is uh, what we need to do in the first instance to establish the program. The hospital has committed that after the program is established... um, that they will fund the program going forward. So uh, 
you know, it's there, it's going to happen, it will happen. Our first clinic is planned uh, for July and uh, we're looking forward to it. Name some of the logistical challenges you have to meet to make this happen in terms of, let's say, fuel and flight planning. And do you have much of a team behind you to make this happen? Well, the biggest issue is uh, planning um, for fatigue, but it's really fuel planning. Um, I've got... uh, I've gone through all the airfields along the way and uh, calculated how far I can fly with headwinds, etc., and making sure that I have uh, avgas in all those places. And that was, in fact, the initial uh, way I went about um, planning my trip. Um, I, the other challenges are obviously places to stay. The other challenges is fatigue and weather. Um, and... Um, one of the things about being a pilot, if you're not right, you shouldn't fly, and that's going to be the mantra I follow. Um, the other logistics, um, I've got uh, some people helping, but ultimately it's my responsibility, and uh, I have been the one who's planned the flight. Now, you're going to be seeing quite a bit of our country, probably more than what most people will see in their lifetime. Are you going to plan anything in particular at any stops along the way, so? So the Children's Hospital in Melbourne, uh, even though it is uh, predominantly the hospital for Victorian children, it is a hospital that looks after children from the whole of Australia and, in fact, internationally. Um, I have a number of patients that uh, come and see me from uh, different states and different cities, and, in fact, I will be doing house calls uh, to them. So I will be seeing a family in Adelaide, a family in Perth, family in Darwin, family in Townsville, a family in Port Macquarie in Cairns, a family in Sydney, a family in Canberra and a family in Bensdale and Hobart. So that's uh, the breadth of what we look after and I will be doing house calls. I'll also be speaking at hospitals in Darwin uh, and I will in addition be uh, talking to anyone who wants to listen, Rotaries, Uh, local community organisations. This is a a program that will benefit not only kids in Victoria but kids in Australia. It's very creative. House calls in all these uh, places around the country. It's uh, it's a pretty unique idea. Well, I mean, I think uh, it's not unique to circumnavigate Australia but I guess it is unique uh, a doctor from the Children's Hospital circumnavigating Australia so I think that that's the unique nature of it. Now, outside this marquee tent is a very gorgeous, shiny Cirrus with lots of sponsors' logos on it. I'm to assume this is the aircraft you'll be taking. What is good about the Cirrus for this purpose? I mean, I've flown um, most uh, sorts of planes, Cessnas, Diamonds, uh, um, Piper. Uh, The Cirrus is a really nice plane to fly. It's... uh, fast um, in comparison so it cruises at about 140 to 150 knots uh, depending on where you are. It's got uh, all the incredible uh, uh, avionics uh, within it. Uh, it's comfortable uh, but I think the biggest uh, biggest thing with a single engine is safety and it has a parachute. It has uh, its own parachute within uh, the canopy um, and I'm hoping I don't have to use it, uh, but uh, we do know that the Cirrus has saved, the, the parachute has saved something like 80 people around the world over the years. 
will we be able to track your flights around the country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you go to flyforthekids.org.au, there is a flight tracker in real time, and uh, uh, you'll be able to track me all along uh, my, my journey. And uh, I mean, the website flyforthekids.org.au has all the information about why we're raising the money. We've got some beautiful videos about families involved with the program, but in addition it has flight tracking and everything else with it. And also a page where you can donate to the Good Friday Appeal to make this happen. And every single dollar will go towards the program. Um, And I just really hope that you can um, open your hearts and make a difference and give some money uh, to our kids. Excellent. Well, Professor Kornberg, it's been a pleasure. Very inspiring discussion we've had here, and I wish you all the best with the venture, and I'll definitely try and see you as you pass through Adelaide, my hometown. Right. Thank you very much. Well, I'm here at the QBE insurance stand, and of course, Matt Hall, it wouldn't be an air show if I didn't bump into you, mate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always uh, good to be down here. Like, it's a great show. It's, a, uh, it's great to, yeah, it's like a, an annual uh, or a biannual uh, event where I get to see all my old friends. Uh, and then being associated with QBE is always, uh, people know where to find me. <laughs> now, before we talk about the Red Bull Air Race, let's talk about uh, fighter jets and the RAF. Now, of course, with your history, we've got the F-35 arriving. Exciting stuff. You must have a lot of mates still in the game that are looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. I'm, uh, I'm actually looking forward to it being here. I've seen uh, the F-35 fly a few times when I'm in the States. Um, but uh, yeah, one, of my, uh, one of my actual students is, uh, is, is bringing the plane in tomorrow. So... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to go and uh, you know, get a get a personal tour around the aircraft from from him. And um, yeah, it's a big it's a big milestone for Australia to uh, to have this aircraft uh, down here now. So you know, from what I understand, talking to him, it's a pretty damn capable aircraft. And uh, I think yeah, ultimately, it's going to be a great platform for us in Australia. What do you think of that cockpit? Does it uh, pale by comparison when you think back to the uh, the Hornet days? Yeah, it's pretty funny because you know when I was getting in the Hornet, uh, yeah, that was you know I first flew the Hornet was uh, 23 years ago, <laughs> and um, you know it, back then it was like wow, look, this has got uh, you know three computer screens in it. <laughs> they were black and green. There was no colour at all oh, in yeah, them. Yeah. Um, yeah, at least at least now they've got colour in the uh, in the Hornet. So back then it was just a cathode ray tube basically, but it was still top notch technology. And then you look at what's going on in these um, in the fighters these days, and um, and also the uh, synthetic visions and everything that's, uh, that's being used. It's uh, yeah, very, very impressive capabilities that's being put to uh, put to use there. I find it interesting with that helmet. I don't know that much about it, but that's a lot of weight to carry on your noggin, I would think. It'd be very hard on your neck. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the curse of being a fighter pilot these days is uh, is you're carrying a lot of equipment on your head. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a point where we were actually just carrying oxygen masks, which uh, increased the load uh, forward of the centre of gravity and brought our centre of gravity forward on the head, which and then when you're pulling G, uh, it can have effect on your um, on your cervical spine. Uh, we then started carrying night vision goggles for nighttime ops, and then it went to helmet mounted sight, the basic helmet mounted sight with uh, with the Hornet. And now with what they're doing with the uh, with the uh, JSF, uh, with the brand new helmet they've got on that, it's a very very lightweight shell uh, to try and get as much weight out of it as possible. But it still weighs a lot, and when you know these planes are pulling nine G, uh, yeah, it's a huge amount that the uh, the neck has to put up with. Now uh, you've just come back from the first round of the Red Bull Air Race, and uh, well, it was a rented plane, so tell us about how that went. Yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't an ideal start to the season, but we've been known. We've known that result was coming for um, basically uh, since about a month after Vegas. So, yeah, as most people will be aware, uh, in Vegas we found a problem with our MXS that uh, stopped us from racing there. 
initially for the first couple of weeks we were hopeful that we were going to um, be able to repair it for um, for this season uh, but after after a couple of weeks it became obvious to us that the, re- the repair work needed was going to be more intensive and uh, longer duration than first expected so we bit the bullet and we uh, we sent it home via uh, surface freight uh, sea freight back to Australia and we bought a brand new uh, Edge V3 being custom built for us uh, with, with what we know about how to make planes fast. We also knew that that new plane was not going to be ready uh, for the first race um, based on the timeline of, uh, of its build. So, uh, as I say, since uh, the end of, um, end of October last year, we knew we were going to have to rent a plane. Um, we were trying for some time up until uh, the end of November to uh, be able to rent Hannes's old plane, and we knew that Hannes would uh, would more than gladly uh, would have wanted me to fly his plane. Um, but for uh, you know, legal reasons, uh, with the estate and all that sort of stuff, we weren't able to get it in time to get it sent to Abu Dhabi to race. So we ended up having to race basically a stock standard um, aerobatic edge that we modified to make it legal. So you know, there's a lot of things we have to do to a plane to make it race legal with telemetry and safety cutters and uh, egress systems etc so we we made it legal but we didn't really make it fast Um, so we went there knowing that we were going to be expecting to be about five seconds off the pace which would then mean that yeah we're we're not getting any results at all as it turned out we're only really about two seconds off the pace from the the, uh, middle of the field um, which we were very happy with Um, and the objective then was to fly cleanly just so that we we demonstrate that we can fly an edge, and uh, we did that. We flew cleanly. We demonstrated we can fly an edge, and uh, it was actually a bonus that we picked up a point. From a pilot's perspective, from a seat of the pants perspective, is it, how does it feel compared to the MXS? Is it a really different feel? Yeah, it was quite a different feel. Um, the M- I love the MXS. Uh, that's all I've really raced in. It was uh, the only aircraft I've ever raced in until uh, this last race. But I did find the edge was actually easier to fly as far as racing was concerned. The MXS is uh, probably a little bit more unstable, um, which makes for a fast plane, because uh, I don't have to put as much control deflection in to get it to change direction. But it, it meant that I was always you know, on the MXS, uh, it, we were always on the ragged edge of, uh, of controlled flight at times. <laughs> and, uh, and we saw that d- demonstrated quite aggressively once. Um, no, we won't talk, we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to talk yeah. about that again. But um, <laughs> yeah, we found the, the visibility was a lot better out of the out of the edge. I was actually expecting to be worse because it's a uh, it's a high mounted wing, or mid mounted wing as opposed to low mounted wing. But um, because you're spending all of your time turning, you're not looking down at the wing, you're looking uh, upwards and, uh, and the visibility over the nose was a lot better. I had a much better visibility going through the chicane and uh, through the pylons. That said, it was a stock aerobatic canopy and I was sitting up quite high. I felt like I was in a double-decker bus uh, when I was out there <laughs> racing. So um, we're looking forward to getting our new plane um, because I now know that I can fly an edge and everyone's telling me who flies the V3, they said the V3 is even easier to race than the V2. So. Um, you know, we're, we're actually a little bit optimistic that uh, yeah, we're going to get this new plane and hopefully uh, with a half an ounce of luck, you know, which, which we uh, eroded some luck at the moment, well. Uh, we'll get, we'll get uh, the plane, it'll be fast already and um, the plane and I will adapt to each other extremely quickly. So what's the timeline on that? Uh, when will it be ready? Um, the plane will be ready uh, around about the 20th of March. Uh, we're heading over, Eric and I are heading over to America on about the 23rd of March at this stage, we believe. Uh, we're heading directly to um, Guthrie, which is in Oklahoma, uh, where the uh, Zipco factory is. Uh, we will um, spend a couple of days inspecting the hell out of the aircraft, making sure we're happy with what we're getting. 
Uh, then I'll uh, do the first flight ever on that aircraft, which is always a nice experience, um, getting an aircraft airborne for the first time in its life. We'll then look to put about 10 hours on it, with uh, me just flying the hell out of it. The good news is it's our old engine, so we don't have to worry about trying to break an engine in, which uh, generally involves long, boring flights. We can actually just get into it and start really pushing the plane really hard uh, from the first flight. And uh, yeah, we'll get it set up the way I want it. We'll get it so it fits like a glove as soon as we can. And then um, once we've done all that, we'll, uh, we'll then uh, I'll fly it down to San Diego and uh, Eric will airline over there and we're, uh, we're ready for the first race. Well, I suppose if you're testing in Oklahoma, you won't have to worry about obstacles like, say, mountains. It's pretty flat over there, isn't it? Exactly. I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to be able to fly around at a constant height pretty easily in, uh, in Oklahoma. The only thing we have to watch out for are the tornadoes. Yeah, tornadoes, absolutely. But, uh, who are we looking out for this season, uh, competition-wise? I reckon it's going to be an interesting season. Um, you know, uh, Matthias is always going to be up there, but Matthias, yeah, to, to be truthful, Matthias had some luck on his side last year. Um, yeah, sometimes he was pretty random in what he was doing with the aircraft, um, but he, he pulled it together when he needed to. So he's always going to be there. Uh, Martin's already won the first round, and we've always known Martin's, uh, Martin's fast, uh, and as is Yoshi. Pete McLeod's had four podiums in a row now, I think it is, so uh, he's being very consistent as well. You know, I'd like to think that I'm a, I'm a contender for being up there. It's, um, you know, it's a bad start and it's going to be hard for us to be winning races from the next race onwards uh, straight away. But you know, who knows? Uh, who else are we looking at? Juan, Juan's always going to be up there. And uh, I reckon a surprise person will be Peter Kopstein. I reckon he's going to do quite well this year, but no one's really looking at him yet. Yeah, well, he might just like it that way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Matt, it was always great to catch up with you and uh, have fun here doing the PR thing at the show. Yeah, for sure. And uh, in fact, as a as a uh, no one really knows this yet, but uh, I'll be jumping in the Spitfire on Saturday. So uh, just as a uh, as a quick cameo, uh, looking forward to being in the Spitfire and uh, flying around Avalon. It's always a tough life. Mate. <laughs> See you, mate. Always great to catch up with Matt, and it looks like he's got his work cut out for him at this year's Red Bull Air Race Series. It's uh, sure going to be a lot of fun to watch. Well, you're listening to episode 130 of PCDU, and I hope you're enjoying this, the first of our Avalon 2017 series. If you pick us up via the iTunes store and you like what you're hearing, well, we always appreciate you uh, taking the time to leave us a review. This really does help the show and helps get us a lot more publicity. And of course, along those lines, as you may have noticed, we've uh, wound back the advertising sales for the time being, chiefly due to our uh, lower production rate at the moment. But there is a way you can support us directly, and that's by heading over to our homepage, playingcrazydownunder.com, and clicking on the Patreon logo. It's just up there at the top right-hand corner of the homepage. Now, Patreon's a service that allows you to uh, pledge a sponsorship amount for each episode we release uh, throughout the year. It comes out at the end of each month, and uh, you can pledge as little as $1, or really as much as you like. In fact, the more the better. I do, after all, need to buy myself a Cessna. No, but seriously, you're only charged if and when we release a new show. This financial support really goes a long way to towards uh, helping us cover our equipment, our hosting costs, our travel costs, etc., etc. And uh, folks, your support in this way, if you can see your way clear, is uh, very much sincerely appreciated. Okay, let's head back to Avalon now, where Grant is talking to Kurt Lyle about the new fuel app launched in partnership with Airbnb, and that's Rocket Route. So, uh, Rocket Route, uh, with support of Airbnb, we've created a new app for ordering fuel. Make it uh, as simple as possible for pilots. They can download the app, put in their credit card details. They can order fuel for all of Airbnb's locations here in Australia and in New Zealand. Takes away a lot of the, a lot of the hassle and convenience when you arrive at the location. 
literally the um, the fueler knows that you're arriving, knows what you want, you fuel up, you've just signed the delivery ticket and you're on your way. So the concept is just fill it up and go. We're launching it here at the Avalon Show uh, in, with support of Airbnb. So you know you're coming into a location, you've set up your flight plan and you just do the one extra, extra step to let them know through this app. You've talked about having a fueler there. What if you go into some of the more regional locations where it's a, a, a Bowser? You just do it manually and use your own card. And That's right. Yeah, so BP are actually looking at options for sort of unmanned locations. But for the moment, yeah, all the, all the major locations that are manned will support this. And so this can also tell you, oh, you know, I'm wanting to go fly somewhere, I need to get fuel. What's available? Yeah, absolutely. If you click into it, I have a look at Cairns, for example. One of the advantages you've got now here is you're seeing all your pricing information. Mm. So you're seeing your currencies, you're getting a full breakdown of all your pricing. So you know what your base price is, what your fees, what your taxes um, are going to be in there as well. You can see who's going to provide the fuel. One click, you're in here to request the process. It's already picked up your aircraft, your quantity captain's request is, you know, if you're not sure how much you're going to take, I want it on arrival date and time hit send that's it wow. and uh, BP will then come back confirm that to you so you've got confirmation if there's a fuel outage you'll know about it before you actually arrive at the location saving you time the fueler is there waiting for you that's it wow makes it a whole lot easier yeah because yeah that's one of the classic issues you you've just arrived pulled up and you're where's the fueler oh he's on lunch uh, we'll see you in an hour yeah and that makes it easy for the fueler you can go I've got nothing for that hour I can duck out and grab a bite to eat that's right. We've just launched, obviously, this week in Avalon here for Australia and New Zealand region. Uh, we've launched this in October last year in, in Europe, uh, again with, uh, with AirBP. And what, we've, what we're working on at the moment is bringing in all the tracking capability into this as well. So not only do we know your flight plan, but we will actually track your flight. And we're looking at some point in the future to roll that out so that uh, the fueler actually has, sees, your, sees your flight plan, gets 10 minutes inbound and uh, will be there ready for you. So in terms of your target market, it's uh, perhaps not so much the little RAOs, you know, the small small RAOs. It's more the corporate side of things. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in in the market at the moment, more the, the corporate end would do a, a fuel release and a request for their flight when they're arriving. But the convenience of this, so you can just put your credit card details in. You don't need to have an account. There's no credit checks. You're just going. I would say this is just as relevant to the smaller smaller end of the market. You know, if you're operating a Cirrus, then you should be. You know, all that type of aircraft you should be using this. Okay. Are you looking at doing uh, any interfacing with uh, applications such as Oz Runways and Avplan? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, from, from our perspective, this is we've, we've developed this as separate to our core flight planning product that we've got at the moment. So in the future, we're, we're more than happy to interface to those providers. So if, they've, if they're running a flight, there'll be a connection here if they want to connect to it. Where did the idea for this come from? Were you just one of the co-founders? Were you just sitting around one day and went, you know, I need to write this? Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's, um, it's, it's interesting you say that. The Rocky Route's been going for seven years. We've been working on, on flight planning. We've kind of got that piece cracked. And, and you look at flight planning sort of one of a dozen things that you typically have to organize. If you're flying somewhere, you've got to sort out all of the, perhaps for a larger aircraft this is, you've got to sort out handling. You might have to sort out permits, PPR arrangements, sort out slots, you know, busier airports and things like this. And you look at all those services, and those are the things that we sort, actually, that's where we want to, we want to be we want to position now our company going forward and so fuel is the first part of that you know the roadmap we've got now this isn't just the end of it it's just the start so we've got a roadmap for three years of the things that we're going to be building out and for us
us doing it in partnership with uh, with BP last year. BP Ventures took a stake in us, so that's really where the you know where that relationships come from. So we've been able to work very closely with BP to get the fuel piece right. We see a lot of, of systems out there that provide fuel prices, but that, those prices are often out of date or not correct. What we've done is we you know we're going directly to BP's customer account information, and you're seeing exactly your price. So if you have a price with BP, that is the price that you'll see in this application service. Anything else you'd like to say on the application while we're here? Just for those that aren't into applications, we have a 24-7 support line as well. So you can just call us up old school and we'll, we'll do exactly the service, the same as tapping, but over a phone. It's manned 24 hours a day, so give us a call. All around the world, I'm seeing local yep. numbers and major com- countries all around the place, not yeah. just Europe or Australia, you've got everywhere. Absolutely. So, you know, Rocky Route, we've, we've built the system to be a worldwide system. You know, we're here promoting, obviously, Australia and New Zealand. If any of your uh, readership are are planning safaris and journeys outside of the region you know rocket route's a great system to use outside as well so in terms of things you've got this is the app uh, for fueling and you mentioned rocket route doing flight planning as well so yeah, so if you if you come out just to the top level you'll see we've actually got three separate apps so we as i said we kept this one separate as a fuel service we've got our flight planning service and we also have a handy weather service as well the fuel and the, the weather service are completely free there's no charges to that it's just the price of the fuel is, is the price you pay between between the fuel of BP, nothing to do with us. The flight planning service is, a, is an annual fee for the same as all the other systems yeah. are out there. In the flight planning, where's most of your users? Is it mostly a European user base at the moment? The idea of Rocket Route came out of a, really the initial frustration of a, uh, a flight instructor that was trying to essentially run his business uh, doing IFR training and in Europe getting an IFR routing. If you haven't got an operations team, was a, was a headache. And so we really started solving that problem and sort of built Rocket Route from there. So it's fair to say most of our usage base, user base is in, in Europe. If you go to our website, actually, we've got a whole breakdown of our statistics. Last year, we did 120,000 flights through the system that are being used, and quite a number of thousands of those flights are around the world. You know, we yeah. see people going up to the Arctic, down to the Antarctic, you know, South America to Russia, you know, into Asia. The system's being used pretty much worldwide. And so it's, it's mostly about building and logging your flight plan for your flight. That's very much where we started. So that yeah. problem about how do I take control over that flight plan so it's not a piece of paper and I'm not dealing with a tower I can just tap on my phone to delay the flight plan or bring forward the flight plan and that's really at the core of what Rocky Route is and then we've now you know as the markets evolve we've brought in all the airspace charts all the moving map capabilities we do all the flight briefings we do flight tracking you know so the products become a lot more established beyond that no that's fantastic and uh, well done for bringing this out and we're going to move over and talk to Alan from uh, AirBP what interests you in uh, uh, How did you first learn about Rocket Route and the, the fuel system? As Kerb was saying, Grant, we, we've seen uh, Rocket Route develop since uh, some time now. We launched it globally in 2016, October. And uh, here in Avalon this week, this is our first launch to the Australian and New Zealand market. So we've been working with um, Kurt and his team for some time. Here in Australia and New Zealand, we're very excited about this because we see it as a way of having an innovative way to our customers to buy fuel. So previously to this, you bought it in a very old school way. You bought it in a way which was cumbersome, slow, this is really a revolutionary way for our customers to buy fuel quickly, seamlessly. You don't have to be an EVP customer. You can sign up with your credit card. The question you asked earlier, the local uh, private pilot can use this, or it can be a regional airline pilot or, or an airline or a military user. So we, we see this as a, a long-term way of having a seamless digital application for buying fuel. It just makes it so much easier and fits right in with what you're doing. Yes, it does. So ABP as a company, we have over uh, 800 locations throughout the world. 
We have 50 uh, countries here in Australia. We have 121 sites that um, have fuel, and uh, this rocket route application works at over 80% of those. So we can see this being a totally digitally connected Airbnb network that transcends the world. So we're very excited about bringing this to our customers. In terms of Airbnb, do you want to let us know how things are going for Airbnb, where, where you're going, what the future directions are? Yeah, so, so from an Airbnb viewpoint, we're, uh, we're the biggest uh, network in, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, on average, we fuel an aircraft somewhere in the world every 15 seconds. So we're a very big and very uh, global organisation. Here in this part of the world, we're very committed to general aviation. So we're constantly building our network. We're constantly trying to innovate. We're doing a lot of things on the environmental agenda, on the technical solutions. Uh, this illustration of the ro rocket route arrangement demonstrates how we thinking about GA. We're really trying to think ahead of the curve and give our customers something which is seamless and innovative and it makes their life and their flying easier. So all they have to worry about is flying. So uh, we're very excited about this and we're very excited about the future of general aviation and we're proud to be a part of it. Anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Other than just saying uh, to all of your readership that we're very excited about what this is going to bring. So we see this is just the start. We think in the next three to four years this will be the catalyst to bring a whole range of really innovative and um, interesting things that will enable the private flyer to have a far more enjoyable and seamless flying experience so yeah we're, we're very excited about what the future will bring for us and your customers well thanks very much for that and yeah it's very cool and looking forward to seeing how everything grows and kurt was there anything else you wanted to say while we're here just uh, how much i'm enjoying avalon actually for for me coming over from europe we're used to events where you either go to a commercial aviation or a business aviation or a general aviation sort of market to come to Avalon I've been blown away by the fact I've got the entire feels like a real spirit of aviation here so I thoroughly enjoyed coming. Well thanks very much gentlemen it's been great to have you on the show. The first two Royal Australian Air Force F-35 Joint Strike Fighters arrived at Avalon today in spectacular style ahead of their display at the Australian International Air Show. The jets were officially unveiled by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull who praised local manufacturers that contribute to the worldwide production effort. Every Joint Strike Fighter will include the ingenuity of great Australian companies. The aircraft are the first of 72 to be delivered to the RAAF in coming years. Steve Vischer, Air News, Avalon. I'm here with the perpetually wonderful Cresha Ballantyne at Cirrus. How are you, Cresha? I'm very well. How are you, Steve? Now, Cresha, it's just you and me talking, OK? So you don't have to tell him. How does Homer get a job as awesome as yours? <laughs> I'm not telling you because I'm constantly having to watch my back as people are trying to steal my job. <laughs> my secret, I'm afraid. So tell us about your job. We go to a lot of air shows and we see you there demonstrating for Cirrus. Yes. So we really believe in getting the aeroplane out to people, taking it out and showing it off and showing people what we can do with it. So so we take it on tour for half of the year. We go and visit all the regional aerodromes in our area and we go to all the air shows and we really love supporting general aviation. Well, Cirrus is just really getting out there. I mean, there were times past where people would look at Piper and look at Cessna and they were really big too, weren't they? Yes, Old absolutely. And of course, Cirrus has just come and taken the market really by storm, haven't they? Absolutely. We're the best-selling single-engine piston in the world and we have been for at least 12 years now. And I think that's largely because we really do engage with people. We get out there, we support general aviation, and we take it out and show it to people. We give, you know, I've been going to these air shows for years, and it's only Cirrus. You know, we're a Piper, we're a Cessna, yeah. we're a Diamond. They're never there, are they? So. Yep. Oh, well, you know, it's to their detriment, isn't it? I think so. So say I've got a cool five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to spend and I'm going to mm. buy a Cirrus. Mm. Tell us about the, the process of buying one, the package, the training, all that sort of stuff. Okay. It's all rolled into one, isn't it? Absolutely. So the first thing I would do, Steve, is I'd work out what you need. We'd have a discussion about what you need because people get this idea that they want top of the range, but 
sometimes that's not actually what they need. So we have a discussion about what you do and where you go and you know what's what's good for you. And then um, we would design that around either an Australis, which has been our best-selling aircraft um, in Australia for the last few years, so we, which is a packaged deal for certain features, or we just build you one from a basic and adding features on. Yeah. And then when you purchase the aircraft, you. Um, it gets built as an individual aircraft, you get a serial number, it gets built in the factory, then it arrives, and then you do your training. So, say I ordered a Cirrus today, what sort of timeline are we looking for? We're about three months at the moment. Three months yeah, is not bad. But yeah, no, it's not bad at all. I mean, and they're all still made in Duluth, Minnesota, and um, we're, we've got a little bit of a rush on because of our G6 and also our new Lycoming engine um, SR20, so it's been an exciting year for Cirrus. Plus, we're, you know, we've got the extra load of uh, the jets, the Vision jets. We've delivered oh, four, yeah. and wow. we've got 25 um, hopefully rolling through to 30 rolling through this year. So. Any orders for this part of the world? Yes, we have seven on order in Australia. Wow. Uh, 125 and 126, I think, both come into the Sydney region. Wow. So we're hoping late 18, 2018. Wow, that's amazing. Mm, I know, it's exciting. Well, we'll have to uh, tee you up for a media ride in that one, I'm Absolutely sure. Absolutely, you will. <laughs> Well, you're talking about planes. I think that nice yellow one out there, that Australis, I'll take three of those, They're actually. gorgeous, isn't it? Isn't it lovely? It's just been such a winner. It, it just... It's all packaged up to have the features that you need. Yeah. The, you know, the sort of, I wouldn't leave home without features. And well, I actually like great. inside, is it the QWERTY keyboard that they've got? Oh, in I know, it's brilliant. You'd wonder, you'd think something like that is so simple, and yet you it's... cannot it's, believe it took them so long, I know, but it's a wonderful thing to have, and um, it's just so natural for yeah. us all, you know, who've become so keyboard dependent. Now, coming into when you came in to start flying the series, tell us about your transition when you come from flying other types of aircraft, and you yeah. used to fly the Bonanza or what, didn't you? So? I flew all sorts, and when I was a journalist, I got to fly in all sorts, and the good thing about that was that I got to to decide what I, where I wanted to go, what I did and didn't want to fly. And I fell in love with Cirrus some years ago and just went and did some transition training down at Avia in um, Moorabbin. Yep. And uh, I was just really, really impressed by how easy it is in a modern aircraft. And I'd always found learning to fly quite difficult and I, I never took to it naturally. So I was quite surprised by how comfortable I was in a Cirrus straight away. You know, people make going a, into the side stick controller would people, be... Yeah, people make a big deal about that. It was about three minutes. I mean, it is a no-brainer. You really don't notice. Yeah. Never having flown one myself, I've sat in the front of one of and course. fiddled with the autopilot. But, uh, of course. Yeah, that's, that was an SR20. No, it's a no-brainer, really. It's a very simple... The forces are very light. Yep. You don't need much force. Um, and you just slot your arm into the door comfortably. And it's a very casual sort of arrangement for flying it's very much about comfort now you go right around Australia but uh, I notice on social media you've been uh, you know you've been lucky enough to go over to the States and, and visit some of the dealerships over there absolutely yeah. yeah so we have an annual meeting um, in the States every year in a different state where we uh, learn about the new product lines so we all go over this year it was in Knoxville and um, I happened to be in the right place at the right time and managed to fly the jet. Now, tell us about that. You've got to oh, tell us incredible. about that. Yeah. It was absolutely incredible. Very I mean, smooth, I imagine. Really smooth, but what amazed me most is that the transition between the SR22 range and the jet, it's just not that big a leap. It just isn't. It's all configured so that moving from the 22 to the jet isn't a great big deal. Everything's in the same place. Everything's, it's got Cirrus familiarity about it, and that, that, that really... Um, 
made me feel comfortable immediately. Yeah, well, they've got quite a good training system. I know some of the bigger universities over there, you said they've got fleets of SR-20s, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's become a winner for training. You know, it's such a user-friendly glass cockpit. And it's great for dual training, too, because you've got the FMS in the middle there, so you can both access the buttons. It's just... A wonderful trainer. Now, if people are looking for you, Chris, they can always find you in uh, Fifi, can't they? F- they can F-A-F. indeed. Although Fifi has been sold to a syndicate. Oh, that'll never do. Um, but I, we've, uh, our company have retained a share until our new aircraft arrives in the country in June. Right. So I will be in Fifi until June, and then we get KBZ, our new aircraft. Okay, I'll have to think of a new name for that one. Won't <laughs> yeah, we? yeah, we will. And will it be a she like the last one? It will be a she. I think all aircraft are she's. At least all Cirrus are. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I think Cessnas might be boys. What is the collective? Sirius anyway. Sirai. I like Sirai. Sirai. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just sounds natural, doesn't it? Absolutely. Krisha, thanks for your time. It's always great to catch up with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Heidi Fedek. Welcome to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under once again. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, it's hard to believe it's been a couple of years since we were last sitting in a G650ER, the Gulfstream Premier, big, long cabin, long range aircraft. Absolutely. Time really does fly, doesn't it? Oh, indeed. But uh, it's lovely to be back on board and having a moment of your time. So thank you very much at Zero Notice for taking some time to chat. Happy to do it. Cool. So um, this appears to be the uh, same uh, kind of aircraft. It's the G650ER. Um, it's the same kind of one we were sitting in last year or last time. But it's... Uh, not quite the same. Can you tell us the differences that we've got on this uh, model this year? I sure can, Grant. So we have here the G650ER, which, as you said, is the same airframe that we've had and that we had here in 2015. But the one you're sitting in today is a four-living area cabin, which we have, haven't shown before at, at Avalon. And so we're excited to have it here. It has its own stateroom. It has a very nice dining area. The area we're in, which is the uh, more entertainment area, we're on the divan across from a TV monitor where we can watch almost anything we'd like and then the club four place club seating in the front as well as a galley with um, although people can't see it stone flooring which is an exciting change for us here yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's always wonderful walking on board a Gulfstream, but wow, yeah, it's it's this one's really tricked out. It is really quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm dreaming again. Um, <laughs> how many kidneys do I sell for this one? <laughs> no kidneys for sale. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, absolutely beautiful. And uh, once again, but I like how you're referring to uh, living areas, uh, the the division between different styles of seating, and yeah, the dining area uh, looks to be able to sit six. So you've got four at one table two at another so uh, and very plush seating it is and there's a leaf that you can put into the table so it will extend and almost make uh, the equivalent of a dining room table right here in your g650 er dining in style at a severe altitude because these get up well above 40,000 feet don't they uh yeah the g650 is capable of 51,000 feet but never fear because our cabin altitudes are very low so even at 51,000 feet you have a cabin altitude of about 4,850 feet so and we also have that wonderful cross section that allows me i'm about uh probably 6'2 at the moment and i can stand upright and my hair's only just touching the ceiling right at the, the apex so that's very impressive i think if you just styled your hair differently you would actually not have any problems whatsoever uh don't worry i think next air show you'll probably find i'll have no problems at all because there will be even less hair than last time <laughs> that's not what i was implying <laughs> oh it's just what's happening <laughs> so yeah and as you said you've got a stateroom in the back 
it looks to have, a, um, I'm guessing, a double and a single bed equivalent, or how does that work? So the divan births into a full-size bed equivalent, and um, if you're close to someone, you could birth two people there. And then um, I do want to point out the windows, because they are the largest windows in business aviation, and the G650ER has 16 of them, including um, in the galley, which is very nice for the flight attendant. It's almost like it's continuous window the whole way along the fuselage. It does feel that way, and because they're so large and there are so many of them, it really creates a light, bright, uh, lovely cabin environment for those long-range flights because this aircraft can fly about 15 hours or more, and so you want to make sure that the passengers are as comfortable as they can be. So very high, very long legs, and it can also go quite fast, I understand. It can. The maximum uh, Mach speed for this aircraft is 0.925, but it generally does cruise at Mach 90, and that's not unusual. That's pretty. That's faster than your average um, uh, corporate jet or even you know the 747s and things like that. So you're definitely going hot, get, getting there ahead of the other guys. It's true, and we found that if you fly at Mach 90 versus say Mach 80, you could save over a week's worth of time um, over a year, and that's pretty significant because you can't buy time. And as we were just talking about, time really does fly. So. And for the people who are flying on these aircraft, that time is critical and measured in the thousands of dollars per hour. So yeah vital. It really is. And um, on the G650ER, you can be very productive. This um, uh, aircraft is outfitted with the latest technology. You can get KA band, which is um, high-speed internet access. You can stream videos. You can have presentations. Anything that you would basically do on the ground, you can do right here in this airplane. Really convenient and be productive for those whole 15 hours or maybe you know, 14 hours and then an hour of relaxing. Yeah, you've got to get some relaxing in and make use of the facilities. That's true, you do. With a screen like this that I'm looking at opposite us, I'd, I'd definitely be wanting to watch a movie. It's, it's very comfortable right here in this entertainment area, isn't it? It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking at the bottom of each window has up and down arrows, so I'm guessing that allows you to uh, um, electronically dim the windows? It's true. Uh, we don't have the electrochromatic on these. It is actually a shear and a shade, um, and so there's a shear that comes down, and if you hit the button again, it's a dark out, so it'll actually um, darken the whole cabin if you prefer that or if the sun is shining just a little too brightly, you might just want the sheer and so that we give you those options. Yeah, not uncommon. I've been on a few aircraft. Nothing as good as this, but I've been up there and the sun's coming up and the daylight's coming in. You've got some people on board who need their beauty sleep. So, yeah, having that op- option is very handy. It is very handy and very nice, and our, our customers seem to like the option of a sheer or a t- or totally dark. Now, speaking of your uh, customers, um, let's have a chat about the market. How's, how's things going? You've, you've bought three aircraft here to the show. You've got the 650ER, we've got the 550 and the 280 sitting there. Um, That's a pretty big presence for Gulfstream. It is a big presence. We were here two years ago when we had the 650ER and the 280, so this year we brought the 550 as well. Um, And we think it signifies our thoughts about the market. We're very optimistic about this region. Um, It's a good region for us, and so um, that's why we brought the three aircraft. Uh, Another indication of how we feel about, you know, the steadiness of this market is that we opened a parts warehouse here and it has $5 million in inventory in it um, and that's located right here in Melbourne. And then we have a field service representative in Sydney, so a permanent field service representative who communicates with our customers and helps them with any issues or challenges they may have and is the intermediary between the customer and product support. So boots on the ground person who can help 
Yeah, that's pretty indicative because Gulfstream's known for having a great network around the world, so it's great to see we're finally a node in that network. Absolutely. We do have and we have product support facilities here in terms of our partnership with ExecuJet, which has facilities in Sydney and Melbourne. So we do um, see this market as an important one for us. Are you aware of just how many 550, 650 size aircraft are flying in Australia? Um, I can tell you we have approximately um, 18 aircraft between Australia and New Zealand. About a third of them are G650ER aircraft. So it's uh, it's a significant number for us. This is a great aircraft. It's the only one capable of flying from Australia to um, to North America nonstop. And so um, an absolutely wonderful aircraft. The majority of the aircraft in, uh, that we have here are large cabins an aircraft. So it's almost evenly divided between G650 aircraft is about a third, G5 series is about a third, and G4 series is about is about a third of them of what we have here. Well, when you live in Australia, you definitely need uh, long-range aircraft to get anywhere else, especially from down here in Melbourne. The, the run up to Asia is reasonably intense, but yeah, getting all the way across the Pacific, that's a long haul. And I mean, when you're on, the, when you're on like an A380 or things like that, it's, a, it's easily 14 hours or more, going, and, you know, especially if you're in cattle class, uh, going all the way across. Roughly how long would it take to do um, west coast of the US to uh, Melbourne and an aircraft like this? It's about 14, 14 and a half hours in this aircraft. But way better than doing it in an A380 in, in the back, that's for sure. I mean, much and all as we love the A380 and the, and the quiet and comfort, I, I, I suspect this would be uh, leaps and bounds ahead of it, especially as it goes at your schedule. Absolutely. There is a, a certain degree of flexibility that a business aircraft, and especially the G650ER, brings. Um, and in terms of comfort, the cabin altitude, the large windows, the furnishings, um, all contribute 100% fresh air, and that's replenished every two minutes. So if, if let's say, you burn that popcorn in the galley, you'll no longer smell that after two minutes. It's a pretty phenomenal aircraft to spend time in. And so um, it's you want to spend as much time as possible, even though we're trying to minimize the time you have to spend on the aircraft. I think it's a bit of a catch-22. Yeah, I can appreciate that. It's, it, this is just wonderful. I could stay here all day. But uh, Heidi, anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Uh, no, we're delighted to be here at Avalon, excited to have three aircraft here and excited to see how the market's doing and, and to be a part of it. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the show once again. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And now it's time for Timbo's Tarmac. Well, you know, it wouldn't be an Avalon Air Show if we didn't have at least one Timbo's Tarmac session. Exactly right. And, uh, well, guess what? Here's Timbo. Hello, Grant. Steve, how are you? Good to see you again. Good to see you, mate. Good to see you. In fact, I think this is the first time I've been on this segment. I just produce them normally. Yeah, I think that's normally it. I just record them and you edit them. But the problem is that we've got this interloper coming through. It's the BAE Hawk. You can tell it's that that beautiful rippling, ripping sound out there as the uh, it goes through with that. What is it? It's the Ada engine? No, which engine do these ones got? Small plane, lots of noise. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. So, Timbo, your uh, Warbird tarmac is finally starting to look like a Warbird tarmac thanks to the Southern Knights t- Formation Aerobatics team of uh, Harvard's. And, uh, yeah, Tamora. So, uh, how are you going, man? Well, yeah, it took a while. Only most of them came in yesterday, which was uh, a bit late in the season for them, but finally filled it up, and now they're off displaying, which is good to see. Yeah, you've got a chance to come and catch up with us, which is great. Of course. Yeah. Now, um, are you allowed to tell us about how on Tuesday the F-22 went unserviceable during the mid-demonstration? Yeah, something went wrong. Uh, They pinched bits off other planes and then found some spares, but it all got going. Something on the left-hand side engine, we don't know. They wouldn't tell us the whole story. Yeah, I just remember seeing him bunting over the top and then suddenly disappeared and yeah clearly uh 
clearly something broke, but he didn't land immediately, though. He went out over the ocean to figure it out, didn't he? Yeah, he was trying to figure out the fault, did uh, two manoeuvres, called it, went out the back, had a play around and fixed it enough to come in. So, yeah, Rock got it back down, which was good to see. Yeah. Always good. You'd expect that of a demo pilot. Now, mate, something I've never seen here at the Warbird Tarmac is a dirty great albatross. We have. We have an albatross over there. But, uh, yeah, pulled it through, got out of the way so we can play with our real planes that are flying. Uh, yeah, because he's been here since before Tuesday, hasn't he? Yeah, he was here when I arrived on uh, Thursday last week, so he's been oh, here for over a week. What's he doing? It's uh, from the company up the back in one of the hangars. Oh, OK, that'll and do it. Amphibious Aircraft Industries, I think they're called, but uh, they, that's their plane. Yeah, I've been drooling over that. I'd love an albatross. It's nice. Yeah. Does it come with wafers? Uh, what, albatross flavour? <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, what's, what's it feel like to be down here in the cool end of town with the uh, warbirds? Well, I don't know, mate, because as we record this, I'm standing looking the other way, and there's uh, two F-16s and F-22, and, hey, there's a tank. I remember when I rode on that tanker all those years ago. Yeah, shut up, shut up. Go away, go away, go away. Yeah, rode on the tanker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I tell you about my case, uh, like my Spartan flight? No, we don't want to talk about that, buddy. This is Simbo's tarmac, not not Grant shows off about his meteor ride. Yeah, nor nor Steve shows up about his multiple meteor rides. But yeah, I was so, going to throw rocks at him when he went and got the Spartan, yeah. but I couldn't pick <laughs> him up in time. Yeah. It was awesome. Uh, it was great. I was coming past. There was everyone, you know, shaking everyone's hand, saying hi. My. Uh, my ref- I was up the hangers when you did the beat up over the cross the field. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have had to throw a rock very far to get <laughs> no, us when we were over. Pretty low. Hey, we've done a lot of Timbo's tarmac segments over the years. We've been doing this show, but how many years have you been doing this for now? Uh, this is my thirteenth show. So every two years, you do the numbers. Yeah. It's been a while. Fifty-eight. I yeah. <laughs> know oh, you're talking American. No, it go back feels, to. Feels like fifty-eight some days. Certainly <laughs> by the Sunday of the last day, it feels like fifty-eight. Yeah, you got to go metric. Remember. So it sounds like they're starting up something interesting. Yeah, I think we better wrap this up. <laughs> Sorry, was that you think you better... Wait, use the megaphone. Yes, I think we better wrap this up. Okay, Timbo, anything else to say, mate? No, see you in 2019. <laughs> it's a deal, mate. Thanks, buddy. Well, there we go. And I tell you, what really would a PCDU Avalon episode be without the traditional Timbo's tarmac segment? Well, Timbo's uh, somewhat an institution there on the Avalon ramp, and as you heard there, he's been doing it a real long time. Well, we uh, like to share a joke or three with Tim. Seriously, it really goes to highlight the really serious work that all the airshow volunteers do. It goes without saying that the Avalon Airshow would really not be able to function without them, and uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's a huge amount of fun, and if you're ever thinking about it, well, uh, I'm sure they're always looking for volunteers coming up for future events. Well, that wraps up this first episode in this series, but there's still plenty more Avalon 2017 content to come. That'll be in episode 131 of the show, and that's coming along in a few weeks from now. That show will include uh, audio from the F-35 program briefing, the Team Reaper UAS launch announcement. We'll be talking to the team from Piaggio, QBE Insurance. I'm talking to AOPA Australia about their relaunch. Mike is talking to the crew from the Antonov AN-124, and even to a crew from a Galaxy, well... Far, far away. We're a part of uh, our uh, Hoth base, and our uh, logistical team has bought our uh, T-47 airspeeder, adapted for the cold weather climate, so our snowspeeder in here for Avalon. Uh, yes, it was really all happening at this year's Australian International Air Show, that's for sure. Well, if you're new to the show, feel free to subscribe via iTunes or via your favourite podcatcher. We recommend the locally developed Pocket Casts by Shifty Jelly. You can get that on iOS, your Android device, even on your web browser. You can find them via all the usual marketplaces. 
We've got a huge backlog of content stretching right back to 2009. And if you like Avalon content, well, we've got content of the 2011, the 2013 and the 2015 shows, as well as AirVenture 2011 and plenty more besides. We've got plenty of videos too on our YouTube channel. And you can find links to all of this and much more on our website. That's plaincrazydownunder.com. I'm Steve Fisher. On behalf of Grant McCarran, Michael Lee and the entire team, thanks very much for listening. Fly safe and we'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, and Micah Lee. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at planecrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.